Welcome to Have a Life Teaching, the podcast designed for educators who are dedicated to enhancing their teaching practice and creating a positive impact on their students' lives. In each episode, we'll dive deep into the world of education, exploring a wide range of topics related to curriculum, instruction, and assessment in K-12 schools. Together, we'll learn from the brightest minds in the education field. So if you're a passionate educator who's ready to take your teaching practice to the next level, join us as we explore the exciting world of education. My name is John Shimbari, signing in and saying, let's have a life teaching. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Have a Life Teaching Podcast, where I hope if you're a teacher, you're getting some great ideas about practices you can bring into your classroom. If you are a school leader, you're learning about leadership. And just generally, wherever you are in the pecking order when it comes to education, you're just getting a better sense of what's going on in our field. Uh, just to preface my next guest, who I'm going to be introducing in a moment, uh, I just want to kind of reflect on an experience I've been having recently, whereas whenever I coach teachers, I'm often hearing the words imposter syndrome come up. And even when I work with leaders, whether coaching them or just, you know, talking with them and commiserating with them about the work we do in education, again, I'm often hearing the term imposter syndrome and and feelings of inadequacy. That So wherever we are in education, it seems that a lot of us, particularly now post-COVID, are, are, are feeling these inadequacies, you know, that, that we really don't belong where we are. And it's no doubt if we look at how our system is set up in education. As teachers, we're asked to make sure a certain percentage of our students are proficient. We're asked to meet the needs of multiple students at multiple times. I mean, all at the same time, excuse me. And we even have a plethora of students particularly struggling with their mental health post-COVID. And then even if we look at our us as school leaders, we're leading in a time of challenge where there's a very strong political right and a political left. And it often seems that no matter what decisions we make, there's always a segment of our communities that's not ha happy with that decision. And we even see just behavior denigrating or morphing into abuse where you actually have cases where teachers are getting threatened and and school leaders are getting threatened and then we also have the issue of what books to teach and what books not to teach and what's banned and what isn't banned so again i don't think it's a, a stretch to say or to to argue why we have imposter syndrome so with that said i'm really excited to introduce my next guest who is dr jill stoddard she is a psychologist who has just written this amazing book on imposter syndrome called Imposter No More. She is a podcast host. She is a TED Talk presenter. And she is founder and CEO of the Center for Stress and Anxiety Management. So I thought there was no better person to come on board to talk about what imposter syndrome is and how we as educators can deal with it so we don't check out and we stay in the profession because we're needed. Uh, Jill, thank you so much for being on the show. Hi, John. Thanks so much for having me. So now, Jill, what I like to always ask my guests when they come on the show is a little bit about your background and how did 
imposter syndrome or anxiety management become your area of specialty within psychology? Yeah. So as you said, I'm a clinical psychologist and I've been doing therapy for many years and then was craving like more creative endeavors. And so I started writing and podcasting and and doing lots of public speaking. Um, and I, I love that. I, the thing I love the most about my profession is all the different hats that I can wear. And, you know, I'm not sure how I got interested in anxiety. I've been asked that before. And I, I think it's just that I knew the treatments that existed worked really well. And that was appealing to me to think that I could like really make a difference in helping people and changing their lives in a, in a robust way. The way that I got in interested in imposter syndrome is, you know, they say research is me search or just yesterday I heard your mess is your message. You know, so basically it was something that I had experienced personally and it wasn't so much the fact that I experienced it that made me interested. It's that I sort of expected to experience it early on in my education and career, but I thought for sure as I racked up achievements, it would certainly go away. And the fact that that never happened, that's the piece that really fascinated me. And the more I researched and the more I started talking to other professionals, the more I discovered that indeed this is what happens that success is actually positively correlated with imposter thoughts and feelings. So the, the more successful we are, the more likely we are to have these thoughts and feelings. And so that was really the piece that kind of fascinated me and made me want to delve into it a little bit more deeply. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to preface my next question based on something you said, which is this, this idea that it's supposed to go away once you uh, have experience. And as I was alluding to before, even school leaders in my field of education, if anything, it gets stronger. It's almost, it, and I think you allude to this in your book, where the more you know, the more you know you don't know, which actually increases more stress and anxiety. Because otherwise, if you don't have these thoughts, then you are a narcissist, right? And Possibly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I think I answered my next question, but I still want to hear your take on it as the sure. guest, which is why should we care about imposter syndrome? Yeah. So I think the answer to that is actually twofold. You know, one is that when people have a lot of self-doubt and question their legitimacy to belong to a group, et cetera, it, it can be the case that they avoid challenge, that they may have goals or dreams or aspirations in their professional world, and they don't go after them because they don't feel like it's their place to do so. But the thing, that's kind of the obvious way people avoid when self-doubt comes up. But I think what is talked about less, but is just as important, is the way that we try to achieve our way out of it. If I just get one more degree or promotion or, you know, continuing ed unit or award or whatever it is, then I'll finally feel legitimate. And the cost of that is potential burnout because you never, you never get there. I, I think I wrote in the book, I always get this image of a cup and you're pouring water into the cup, but there's a hole in the bottom. So it, it never gets full. It never gets topped off. And if we do that for a long enough time, there's really a danger of, of burning out. Yeah. And it's funny you say that because I still remember when I got my doctorate, I expected like the, the angels to sing and 
flowers to bloom in front of me. And my dissertation advisor, because I asked him, I said, do you need me to leave the room while you folks discuss? He's like, no, John, you don't need to leave the room. Congratulations, Dr. Schubert. And I mean, I am proud of it. And I always be proud that I that I dealt with that torment for that many years. But at the same time, I got to admit, even I left going, is that it? Is is that mm-hmm. is that it? So to your point about there's always more to do, or we feel that there's always more to do. And and yeah, we are going to burn out. And I think too, bringing it back to educators, because there is so much to do. There are so many students to meet the needs of. There are so many parents in our community to support. There, there, there's so much politics and figuring out how that how that impacts what we do as teachers and leaders. I think burnout is real. And I think we see it in the number of educators who are leaving the profession. I think what's probably happening with educators, what you know, going back to your example of sort of even when people get into administration, they still experience this doubt. And I think that's this idea of the more the the higher you climb, the more you're expected to know, even if you don't feel like your knowledge has increased that dramatically. But the other piece of what you're saying with educators is I think the burden of what is expected from educators has increased without the support and the educate, right? Like I was saying to you before we started recording that so many youth are struggling with their mental health. So now teachers are expected to somehow be experts in behavioral health on top of being teachers. And that's really not a fair (laughs) burden to place on teachers. And they're not really getting the training and support they need to be able to do that. So of course you're gonna struggle with self-doubt and feel like you don't feel expert enough at managing all of the different balls you're being asked to juggle. Uh, Yeah, it's funny you say that because on a recent podcast, we had an assistant principal talking with uh, somebody who is uh, also a leadership coach. And she was, and they were talking about with me how they initially thought they needed to have all those answers, right? That Mm -hmm. it's that leadership is about having all those answers, But in reality, if we truly look at what leadership can be and maybe should be, is more as a sounding board, surfacing those questions. Now, that was the conversation we talked about there. How as a leader are we, and I know you talk about presence in your book as well, how do we be present for those that we're supporting and leading by asking questions So it's not about necessarily having all the answers, but being present and checking into one's emotions, as well as the emotions of those that we are supporting. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's incredibly important. And I will say the longer I am in this career, the more and more I am realizing, not just in my experience, but what research is showing us is the importance of our connections with each other. You know, that this is one of the biggest predictors of overall mental and physical health and well being is the presence of quality relationships in our lives. And I think that can be true at work too with your colleagues and with your your leaders. That, you know, the more that we can support one another as human beings, that there's something like very regulating about that, even if it doesn't come with all of the answers. Definitely. So you were saying something before, and I want to go a little bit on a tangent down that road. You were talking about, and maybe it was when we were off camera talking about 
success. And yeah, I know you were talking mm-hmm. about it here too. And and I, I, I did look at your website and you, you talk a lot about as well, taking success from failure, given that educators have so much on their plate, how would you suggest to educators that they reframe their thinking around failure and success to be more confident in what they're doing on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. And I think it's something important that we don't think about that often, but I think the mindset shift needs to come in how we define success because, and especially this is true in education, the way we define success is so often based on achieving a specific outcome. And if we don't achieve the outcome, well, then we're a failure. And I really think we have that wrong because we don't control outcomes. You know, you can be the most talented teacher on the planet. But when you, as you were pointing out before, when you have all different kinds of kids with all different learning styles and there are 30 of them and one of you and they're all at different ability levels, it's just impossible to be able to do all of the things that you want to do as well as you want to do them given that context. And so, you know, I think if we can reframe success, not in terms of whether we're achieving specific outcomes, even if that's what the state wants to focus on, right? Like the <laughs> the government may make you report these numbers and they may make decisions based on those numbers. But you as an individual who's trying to make a difference in the world of kids and learning, I think the focus needs to be on steps and process and choice, how you move your hands and feet and mouth, because truly that is the only thing we get to control. We don't control other people. We don't control outcomes. We don't even get to control our thoughts and feelings. All we get to control is how we move our hands and our feet and our mouths. And I think that if we can stay focused on choosing the ways that we move our hands and feet in our mouths, like in line with our values, who and how we want to be, what we want to stand for, what we believe to be effective, what our education has taught us is effective, and then hold those outcomes more lightly, that can really help with perseverance. It doesn't mean you don't have goals and then you don't want a certain outcome. I I tell the story in the book, I think about how I started creative writing. And of course, the goal, the outcome I want is to get published. But I wrote for 10 years and just got rejection after rejection after rejection. And some people might be like, gee, Jill, maybe it's time to, you know, hang up the old keyboard. Like maybe this isn't really what you're meant to do. But I was focused more on my why. I want to be creative. I want to focus on skill building, like learning how to become a better writer and learning the rules for certain types of writing, um, you know, et cetera. And so when you're focused on your why, It helps to persevere. And if you hold those outcomes lightly, you can keep going. And, you know, I published my first essay in year 11. And if I had given up after a year or two, you know, that that never would have happened. I love that. And and in fact, it talks to 21st century learning skills, which we're trying to instill in our students. You know, what do you learn from the journey It really, truly is about the journey as well as the destination. Because like you said, if you want to be published, you want to be published. But it's funny when you were talking, because I think, yes, we should in an ideal world uh, not be slaves to outcomes. The reality is, though, in education, teachers are evaluated on Mm -hmm. outcomes. So that's what I do, right, Jill? That's what I do. I help folks 
develop teaching strategies and leadership strategies to get more of the students having those or having us having those outcomes in terms of student growth and achievement. As a coach, it's much easier for me to help folks when people are on the bus in terms of the mentality of knowing how they feel, not suppressing that feeling, but leaning into it and going, okay, I feel stressed about this. Uh, I, I feel like, you know, I'm not in the best position. I'm not the best one to do this. So for example, you mentioned social emotional learning. I hear that all the time. I'm not in the, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not in the best position to help kids with their social emotional learning, but there are techniques to even build social emotional learning, for example, into learning, into academics. And that's the work I do. But someone's inherent feelings, I don't control that. You were talking about you only control yourself. Mm -hmm. So I don't control somebody else's external feelings. But in the book, you talk a lot about how people can reframe their thinking about their feelings. So let's say, Joe, I am working with, maybe you can give me advice. So let's say I am working with a youngish teacher, maybe a, uh, maybe a young woman, maybe she's from a marginalized community, maybe she's Latinx or, or African-American, or maybe she herself came from another country when she was young, right? And was an ELL learner. Uh, and she's new, and this is a lot of my students, for example, because I teach at Brooklyn College, I teach student mm -hmm. teachers. How would you suggest I coach folks such as her to lean into her feelings, reframe her thinking around those feelings mm -hmm. so she stays in the profession and realizes, no, we need her voice. We need her as a teacher. What are some of the strategies, the actual practical strategies that you would recommend really for anyone, but in our case, teachers and leaders, when they're feeling they're not good enough? What we know is that our, our sort of automatic tendency as humans is to try to suppress thoughts that we don't like and to avoid feelings that we don't like, right? We all want to just like hang in our comfort zone and have nice, positive thoughts. And that's just not how it works. You know, to be human is to know pain. We literally come out of the womb screaming. And if we're not, it means something's terribly wrong. So to experience stress and anxiety and all of the, the full range of emotions is truly what it is about to be a human being. And so what I would want that mindset shift to look like is the thoughts and feelings you have that are uncomfortable, that you don't love, they are not your enemy. They are part of being a normal human being. And in fact, we could like delve all the way into how we were evolutionarily designed to worry and avoid uncertainty and, and all of it, even engage in social comparison. So all of that is normal. And the harder we work to get rid of it, like right now we can test this out, not because I'm telling you it's true as some expert, but your listeners and you can test this out right now. If you just try as hard as you possibly can to not think about a red balloon, and, you know, we can give a little bit of time or we can give people homework later. Like, just try as hard as you can not to think of a red balloon. And, you know, you could even pick another object nearby and try to find, I have a pink lamp. So I could go pink lamp, pink lamp, pink lamp to try to make me not think of the red balloon. And what you'll notice happens, balloons are going to start popping up behind your pink lamp. And you're going to start thinking about Pennywise and singing 99 red balloons. And 
right? It's, this is just the way brains work. The more we try to push things away, the more present they become. And so that's an example with thoughts. Feelings are the same. And the best metaphor I love for this that I think really hits this home when you try to suggest people change their relationship to thoughts and feelings is if I were to hook you, your listeners up to a machine, like a lie detector, but it tells me how stressed or anxious you are. And I say, whatever you do, just don't get stressed or anxious. You'll be totally fine. But if you do get stressed or anxious, it's going to deliver a lethal shock and you're going to die, but just don't get anxious and you'll be totally fine. What's going to happen? You're anxious and you're dead. And if you think about the reason for that, it's because of your relationship that you now have to stress and anxiety. It's, oh my God, this is bad. It's dangerous. If I have this, I'm going to die. I can't have it. I can't have it. So now you're stressed about stress. So you're stressed, right? So the more we're unwilling to have something, the more present it's going to be. So the alternative to that is like observing your thoughts without trying so hard to change them or push them away and making space for the the discomfort, whether it's physiological sensations or emotions. Now, this doesn't mean you have to like it or want it. That would make you a masochist. And then we'd be having a different kind of conversation. But it means like, I'm going to change my relationship to this internal stuff that's showing up anyway, because the more I fight it, the bigger it becomes. And the alternative to fighting it is learning to live alongside of it, knowing these are just feelings. They're temporary. They're not dangerous. And most of all, you can handle it. You know, we overestimate the likelihood that bad things are going to happen and we underestimate the, our ability to cope with it. And the way to, to really learn that bad things don't usually happen, but even when they do, they're not as bad as our mind tells us and we can handle it is to stop avoiding, is to lean in. And then of course, there's like all sorts of strategies to kind of build that willingness muscle or the way I like to talk about it is getting comfortable being uncomfortable because that mm -hmm. kind of clicks for people. And there's all sorts of ways to practice that. And if we have time and you want to do that, we can. And you know, of course, there's lots of those exercises in the book if people are interested in, in doing that. Yeah, I like how you said that, Jill, because I was thinking a lot of times and we talked a little bit about this off mic, you know, I'll work with teachers and I often work with teachers about releasing control to the students, right? Getting away from the lecture-based model of teaching. I mean, there's a purpose for lecture, but minimizing that time and releasing students to productive struggle and to work with one another. But often teachers are stressed to do that because not every student has gotten the concept yet. And so... You know, I do try to ask them questions around, well, how else can you do this, right? Could you, and they're like, well, I could walk around, right? Okay, so maybe you could do that. Or, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen if they don't immediately get this concept? Well, maybe I'll have to, as a teacher, go back and reteach it later. Okay, is that the worst thing that could happen in the world? Can you right? handle that? Yeah. Right, exactly. So. To your point about realizing or more fully realizing that we do inherently have the capabilities to handle problems when they arise. Right. And I think the other thing you're talking about that I've observed in educators too, and I'm sorry, in all humans, but this certainly <laughs> comes up a lot for educators, is we don't like uncertainty. And change means uncertainty. So when all of a sudden you're going from lecture to project-based learning or whatever the shift is, 
there's uncertainty there and that and that is evolutionarily wired into us right avoiding uncertainty gave you a survival advantage and so we are programmed to be resistant to change and to not like uncertainty and so that's one of the things you can learn is like oh i'm noticing that because this is new for me and i have no idea what's going to happen. And I'm not totally certain about my ability to do this differently. That's making me feel stressed and anxious. And that's normal. That's exactly how you're supposed to feel when you're doing something new. That doesn't mean it's bad. It's not the enemy. It's just a, a discomfort that I have to push through. And I like the idea of, you know, a comfort zone if you think of a comfort zone as like a circle, the edge around it is like your vulnerability edge. And the more you're willing to kind of push against that edge, the more your comfort zone sort of expands over time. As you were saying that, Jill, I was thinking of an actual example of where I was working with the teacher once and she was very lecture-based and I was trying to get her to do more turn-in talks, more student-to-student activities. And she, I mean, to her credit, she did surface the anxiety. Her comment was, well, I don't want to do that and ruin my rapport with my students. It was a struggle working with this teacher because of that fear. What if I don't do this right? I was trying to convince her, talk to her about, well, let's look, what do you think? Some of the positives that could come out of this. Well, maybe your students will learn how to learn from each other a little bit more. Maybe they have knowledge that that's inherent in them that they could bring out. It's not just the teacher's knowledge. Well, you know what you were doing, John, probably without even realizing it. In psychology, it's called motivational interviewing. And you were basically having a conversation with her where you're trying to She's engaging in a lot of what we call sustained talk, things that keep her doing the exact same thing, the same behavior. And what you wanted was to her to get her engaging in more change talk. And so motivational interviewing is a style of therapy that's aimed at helping people who are ambivalent about change. They feel both ways about it. It was designed initially for substance use. I know that I should quit drinking and it's bad for me, but also I really love drinking, right? Like there's lots <laughs> of good things about drinking. That's ambivalence. And this is a style to get them to see more of the benefits of quitting and the drawbacks of staying the same. And that's like essentially what you, what you were doing. One thing you said, or you were mentioning in the book that I think might be of help to educators to, again, if they don't have a coach, you know, able to have this back and forth with them. Right. And there's a tool, I think you, well, there is a tool in the book that I think might be helpful to folks in reframing their thinking or thinking about their thinking, which should hopefully help them control their anxiety, which ultimately hopefully can help them control their negative feelings of imposter syndrome. And that is, could you talk a little bit more about the four Ps? Do you think that that would help here? Yeah. So the one thing that we haven't talked about that's critically important is, you know, the main goal of this book is to help people build psychological flexibility. And we know psychological flexibility is a very robust predictor of well-being. And what that means is we're able to be in the moment, aware of what we're thinking and feeling, open to all those internal experiences, and making conscious, deliberate decisions to engage in a values-driven way. And values just means that you're showing up 
who and how you want to be cultivating the life that you want, a life that has meaning, et cetera. And so the four Ps basically refer to when you are at a choice point or what I call a point of possibility. It's corny, but I love it because the acronym is POP. And I don't know about teachers, but psychologists love their acronyms. And so these oh, POPs. Oh, too. Yeah. <laughs> so POPs are points of possibility. So in any given moment, you have this choice that you can make. And you can either choose to like dive into your comfort zone or you can choose to live in accordance with your values. And so the four Ps are sort of a way to go about doing this. So during a point of possibility, first you pause and you get present. So I sort of cheated and got two Ps into the first P, but just pause and get present so that you're noticing how you're thinking and feeling. Because that's, of course, the first step. If you're not even aware that you're having self-doubt or feeling anxious, that's you're not going to be able to change what's happening. So pause and get present. Pick your values. And values are really qualities of being. So I want to be present, loving, affectionate, assertive, self-respecting, you know, these kind of qualities. And then you're either going to persist with the behavior you're already engaging in or pivot to something that's more values congruent. Mm. So it's sort of like, what is this choice in the service of? Am I going to, you know, do what John is suggesting and maybe bring the lecturing down, the didactics down and the turn and talks up. You know, it's that kind of like, I'm going to pause and notice I'm feeling anxious. I'm going to pick my value of maybe openness or curiosity or willingness, um, courage, skill building. And then I'm going to pivot away from my didactic lecturing toward doing more of the interactive teaching that you're recommending. Given that schooling is in a constant state of change, yes, education and schooling is about change. Taking students from here, from point A, and helping them grow and achieve to point B. So because it is all about change, how can we use POPs? How can we use positive framing to help us as educators, not only to realize that, again, we have the ability to make these changes, but also to reframe our thinking away from that anxiety. Yeah. So we really ended up, Jill, talking not only about imposter syndrome, but dealing with the anxiety that can lead to imposter syndrome or other maladaptive behaviors. Right. Right. And I will say, you know, my goal for the book and the, the feedback I've gotten from everyone is that I want it to be accessible and practical where you can actually walk away doing things differently in a helpful way. And that's certainly the the feedback that that I've gotten. So hopefully if there are people that are interested in, in making some of these changes, they'll find that to be the same as well. One other question, one other main question is, and you just segued us into it. Are there any other strategies that you would recommend teachers, school leaders use to feel less like imposters? Actually, the short answer to that is no. And the reason I say no, of course, there's loads of strategies to help people build psychological flexibility. But to answer this question, feel less like imposters. What is different about this book, and I will tell you, it's like the one one-star review I got was because this person didn't like what I'm about to say. This book, unlike every other book and blog and whatever else that's out there about imposter syndrome, 
is not about making that voice go away because it's impossible, right? Like I, mm. there's all sorts of books out there that claim to do that. And yet I, the, the rates of this seem to be increasing. I haven't heard anyone say, oh, go read this book. It magically cured my imposter thoughts and feelings. I think what's important to know here is that when we care about things, like think about the last time you were up worrying at 2 a.m., right? Mm. You're, what are you fretting about? You're not fret. I like to joke. You're not fretting about the fact that there's not going to be a season four of Ted Lasso, even if it was your favorite show of all time. I am, I am upset about that. <laughs> I'm upset too, but it's not keeping you up at two in the morning. Correct. Right. Correct. What we, what keeps us up is the things we care deeply about our family, our friends, our careers, etc. And so if you are doing things that matter to you, like working in education, you are, and you care about it, the stakes feel high. And therefore you are going to have self-doubt and anxiety. This is just the way it works, right? Because if you didn't care, I joke about how I once, you know, fell off a bike and I didn't spend any time worrying about it because I just don't care about my ability to pedal the bike. But then it triggered all these thoughts about how my kids were, you know, seven and nine and still didn't know how to ride a bike and what a terrible mother I am because I desperately care about being a good mom, right? And so there's nothing in this book that's going to take those thoughts and feelings away. But what the book does do is teach strategies for changing your relationship to that, to recognizing it's normal and learning how to go after what you care about in the presence of those thoughts and feelings. And, and I've actually had several people come to me or email me, you know, come to me after a talk or email me and say, I've been wanting to insert goal here, write a book, do a TED, whatever for years. And now I'm going to go forward with it. Like now I feel like you've given me the skills to be brave and to go after the things that, that I really want to do that I've been too scared to do. Uh, Jill, any other thing that we didn't cover that you feel the listeners would really benefit from? And then can you tell our listeners where people can find out more about you and the work you do? Sure. I have a favorite metaphor that I would love to share, which is to kind of help people get unstuck. And it's this, it's if you think of yourself as a ship and you're journeying through the ocean, sometimes a very thick fog will roll in and you think, you know, this is dangerous. I need to drop anchor and I need to hang out until the fog clears. But as long as you've dropped anchor, you're no longer moving forward on your journey. And in this metaphor, the fog are your thoughts and feelings. And if you wait for your self-doubt and your anxiety and all that uncomfortable stuff to clear before you move forward, you may never, ever move forward. And what you can do instead of waiting is just like a ship can keep moving forward, even in the fog, you look to the lighthouse and the lighthouse is your beacon that can guide you. And it may mean going more slowly and, you know, whatnot, but that beacon is your values. So if you really get clear on what you want to stand for in the world, I like to call it the me I want to be. That's a really easy way to remember it. What do I want to do and how do I want to do it as I navigate the world? That's your beacon forward, even when that fog of difficult thoughts and feelings gets thick. Yeah, exactly. And then I think for teachers, one way I, I think they could use that metaphor is when, you know, when teachers are struggling or feeling, oh, I don't know if I could do this. Well, why'd you become, remember, and you even talk about this in the your book. Why. Remember your why. Why did you want to become an educator in the first place? Tap back into those thoughts about wanting to make a difference and to push forward through the uncertainty. So Jill, where can people find out more about you? They can find everything about me at my website, which is just jillstoddard.com. My podcast interviews are there and my books and 
social media, anything. My newsletter, I send a newsletter once a month if people want tips about psychological flexibility and stress and anxiety and imposter syndrome, um, you can sign up there. And it's it's once a month and it's very brief. Great. Thank you so much for your time today, Jill. I really enjoyed talking with you. You're so welcome, John. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it too. Thank you for listening today. I hope you got some great tips that you can bring back into your teaching. Remember, have a life teaching without sacrificing your own. Also, don't forget to subscribe and be well.